The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. My subject today is a sure and steadfast hope. The text I'll be preaching from is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, which I'll read in just a moment. As we think about sure and steadfast hope, I'll just put us within the last few hours. I went to bed last night with headlines that North Korea had launched a ballistic missile, uh, which failed, and that the United States was assembling its fleet off uh, the coast of Korea leaves us in an uncertain place in the world. Really with questions of what do we trust in? What do we hope in? Friends, the world has always been up and down and it will be so until the coming of Christ. But what I wanna encourage you with today is that you can find and you can know a sure and steadfast hope even in the midst of a changing, volatile world. So it is with that encouragement that I turn our hearts to God's word, Hebrews chapter six, verse 13. I invite you to stand please as I read God's holy word. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord, I plead now that you would take your word and apply it to our uneasy hearts and that you would grant us and give us hope and that through Christ alone. Speak to everyone who gathered and everyone who is listening through the internet, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we have gathered to celebrate the greatest hope in the history of humanity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What appeared to be hopeless and bleak on Friday at the crucifixion bursts forth into hope on Sunday morning. And that hope affects our lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, in reference to people who have died, who are of the faith, Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or have died, that you may not grieve as, uh, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So even in the face of death, through the resurrection of Christ, we are a hopeful people. However, it appears to me, and this would be 
the perspective in which I'm currently looking at the world that I live in and you live in. It appears to me that people have traded lasting hope for temporary happiness. The mantra of the day is, do what makes you happy. And then you'll be happy. Because the mindset is, the worldview that's driving that is, this is all there is. And if this is all there is, you better experience all you can. So as a result of that, people refuse to slow down or pause because to slow down or pause is to realize even in our pursuit of another experience, something's just not quite right inside of us. The irony is that the pursuit of happiness often leads to hopelessness. You say, I don't understand that. Here's an illustration. This is an article written in the Huffington Post on March the 2nd, 2017. It's written by Michael Hobbs entitled, The Epidemic of Gay Loneliness. Now be careful here before I quote. This is written by a gay man. My goal in using this is not to bash the homosexual community or to be the stereotypical fundamentalist preacher. I share this with great concern for others. I share it as evidence of what is going on in our culture on multiple levels, both seen and unseen, both admitted and hidden. Michael Hobbs just has the courage to say what many are experiencing. Quote, Jeremy and I are 34. In our lifetime, the gay community has made more progress on legal and social acceptance than any other demographic group in history. As recently as my own adolescence, gay marriage was a distant aspiration, something newspapers still put in scare quotes. Now, it's been enshrined in law by the Supreme Court. Public support for gay marriage has climbed from 27% in 1996 to 61% in 2016. Then he asked the question that people are afraid to ask. Still, even as we celebrate the scale and speed of this change, the rates of depression, loneliness, and substance abuse in the gay community remain stuck in the same place they've been for decades. Gay people are now, depending on the study, between two and 10 times more likely than straight people to take their own lives. We are twice as likely to have major depressive episodes. He's asking this question. We got what we wanted. Why are we so hopeless? the same experience of the middle-aged man who's worked 50, 60 hours a week and earned all the money he could and bought everything he ever wanted and gave his children everything he never had. When he puts his head on the pillow every night, wonders, is this it? Is this all there is? You see, this man 
is expressing what's going on in the hearts of many. Most are operating in silence, saying nothing. Living on in a numb world that pursues one experience after another, seeking to find the elusive, permanent happiness. Are we simply looking to feel good, friends? Or are we looking for more? When we seek to find hope in something or someone who cannot ultimately give us hope, where we end up is hopelessness. My prayer today is to call you to a sure and steadfast hope, a sure and steadfast hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And I call you on this day, the day that celebrates the most hopeful event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. From Hebrews chapter six, I would like to extract two major thoughts. First, sure and steadfast hope rests in God himself. Now this is significant, friends, because we, we are looking for this hope somewhere else. It's a very man-centered, a very me-centered attempted hope. But the scripture affirms that sure and steadfast hope rests in God himself and it's guaranteed. Now think about this for me. Just finish this statement. The only guarantee is there are no guarantees. No wonder we're hopeless. That the only guarantee we have is there are no guarantees. No wonder we've arrived at a, a numb, hopeless state. But here God offers a guarantee. And the guarantee is himself. And it's in the context of talking about Abraham. Last week we introduced, I'm preaching through Genesis. We introduced Abraham. Abraham was called by God to leave his pagan home and his pagan family and his pagan religion and go to a land that God had promised. The Lord promised him at 75 and his barren wife, who had never had a child up to this point, that he would make their descendants as, as great as the dust of the ground. So verse 13, chapter 6. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oaths is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now I want to extract two phrases here. First, he swore by himself. Now people still say this. They'll make a statement and say, I swear to God. Or where I'm from, I swear on my mama's grave. I never quite understood that because none of my friends' mothers were dead. Swear on my mama's grave. No, why do we do that? It, the answer's in the text. Verse 16. People swear by something greater than themselves. So they appeal to a, an authority or to a person of respect, and they swear by that. God says here, there's no one higher for me to appeal to. So I swear by myself. God then 
guaranteed it with an oath. An oath, a spoken oath that he gave to Abraham because God is saying, my word is sufficient, it's enough. How can God make such an audacious statement that his word is enough? Because he is the one who spoke and the world became. He spoke and the world was brought into existence. His word is his bond. When God says it, he will do it. And what God says he will do, he will do. The context here, the reference in Abraham actually is an appeal to Genesis chapter 22. It says, by myself, this is God speaking, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I just want you to think this simple thought with me. The evidence of God's guarantee is sitting in this room right now. It's every believer in Christ. Do you realize that you are an answer to God's promise to Abraham that if you, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to his promise. That leads to a sure and steadfast hope that is guaranteed by God. But not only is it guaranteed, this is so important in this world, it is unchangeable. Aren't you kind of tired of having to buy the next version of the iPhone? I mean, it, you know this is all rigged, right? They know like 15 years out what the new iPhone's gonna be. It's just a rigged world to change things, to make us buy things. But here's what God's done. God's some, done something unchangeable, something guaranteed. It says, so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Two unchangeable things. Let's try to extract those. What are the two unchangeable things the writer of Hebrews is referring to? First, it is the irrevocable nature of God's purpose and word. That God has set forth his purpose in the world. He has spoken into existence. He has said why it exists. And that is unchangeable. God's not making it up as he goes. Number two, the other unchangeable thing is the oath that God declared publicly. The oath that he declared to Abraham, that he would keep his promise. Then he says, it is impossible for God to lie. God never deviates from the truth in these two unchangeable things. Because if God deviates, he would cease to be God because he would be a liar. But it is impossible for him to lie. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So here's my question. What did God promise? What is it? 
What is it that he put out there? What did he promise to Abraham? The answer is in Galatians 3.16. Here's what it says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. What God was promising to Abraham is what he promised all the way back in the garden at the fall. That the seed would come who would crush the head of the serpent. That the promised Messiah was coming. And Paul states in 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Christ is our hope because he and he alone has secured our hope. And that's the second thing I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 6. The sure and steadfast hope is secured by Jesus Christ. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot there, and I'm not going to confuse you, but let me just simply explain the order of Melchizedek. That means that Jesus Christ held two offices and holds two offices. He is both king and priest. He is eternal king and priest. He did not become our high priest when he ascended into heaven. He took his rightful place because of his atoning work on the cross and the power of the resurrection. At the cross, as a result of the cross and the resurrection, we have, verse 19, present active, this is ongoing. We don't pick it up and lay it down. We have, we possess this as a sure, this is certain, steadfast, unmoving, firm anchor of the soul. The anchor of our soul is Christ. Now here's the question then. How does Christ become the anchor of my soul? Because I went to church? Because my mom and daddy drug me to church? Because I grew up in a Christian home, whatever that looks like? How does Christ become the anchor of my soul? I'd like for you to, if you have a Bible, look with me in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Now in the first sentence, it says, no unbelief made him. Him is Abraham. So no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And remember, he's 75 years old and his wife's barren. But he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, God hadn't even done it yet. Abraham believed God was going to do it. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Christ becomes the anchor of our soul 
when we believe that the work of Jesus Christ is necessary. And don't, don't, don't track off on me right here. If you don't get anything else I say, what I'm going to say in the next few minutes is crucial to bash this form of Southern religion. Necessary. So what was necessary today is not you got, got up and got dressed in your Easter finest and came to church. That's not what was necessary. It wasn't necessary that you checked it off and got your yearly quota in or your weekly quota in or whatever it is and got your mama off your back. And I know that's why some of you are here. I know that. Been there, done that, right? But here's what faith is. Faith is saying that what Christ came to do was necessary. I don't know what you're talking about. What I mean is that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Now, we fundamentally know something's wrong with us. Whether we want to admit it or not, we know it. We know something's broken inside of every one of us. That brokenness is sin. And what we are saying by faith when we come to Christ first is that it is necessary that Christ has come. It was necessary that Christ come as God incarnate, born as an infant, fully God and fully man, that he could live a sinless life, a perfect life, and die on the cross a sinner's death in our place. Christ did not sin, but because he was sinless in the perfect sacrifice, he bore the wrath of God in my place, in our place, on the cross, and he became a curse for us. And he finished the work of redemption by stating, it is finished. Then he died. A real death. God died. And they placed him in a tomb. But, because he's fully God and fully man, three days later, he bursts forth from that borrowed tomb and he lives. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So when I say that's necessary for me, then I flee to Christ. I flee to Christ from God's wrath upon my sin. I abandon my trust in my human effort and my outward religion and I drop everything that I've trusted in up to this point and I run to Christ. I say with the great old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly. It means as a sinner, I come to the redeeming work of Christ. Look. Look here, heard just so much in this part of the world. I gotta get cleaned up to get right with God. No, you'll never do it. It is impossible to clean your act up apart from Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone when the next line of the hymn says, wash me savior or I die. Wash me savior or I die. When I flee to Christ, I do more than find refuge from judgment. When I flee to Christ, I lay hold of hope.
biblical hope. You know what the word hope means in the Bible? It means future certainty. I lay hold of, in Christ, a future certainty. A certainty that does not come from my human effort or my human confidence. It's a certainty that comes from the unchangeable promise of God who guaranteed it with an oath. So here's my question to you and to me. I encourage you to ask yourself this question right where you're seated or where you're listening to me right now. Is my soul anchored in the sure and steadfast hope of Christ? I want to bring you back to a statement in, first, in Hebrews 6. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now I want you to think about this with me. What do you call a person who seeks refuge? What do you call them? A refugee. We also have fled for refuge. Right now, today, there are thousands seeking to flee Aleppo out of Syria. Yesterday, a convoy of buses were attacked. And it just came over BBC a few minutes ago that 126 people were killed, 68 of them children. Meanwhile, thousands are fleeing Somalia, probably the most help, hopeless place on the planet. Others leaving Afghanistan. So here's what you need to know right now, right now, while you're sitting here, there are currently 60 to 65 million refugees or displaced persons in the world. Half of those people are children. 80% are women and children. What's a refugee? A refugee is a person who cannot go home tonight. They cannot. Even if they wanted to, they cannot. For many of them, there's no home to return to because war has ravaged it. And here's what we've watched. We've watched in desperation people take drastic measures to escape to find refuge. We've seen these awful moments in news footage where people have overcrowded ships and boats and makeshift rafts and set adrift on the, on the sea with no motor, no anchor, desiring that someone would rescue them. And we've seen some perish. Here's what you need to realize today. We are all spiritual refugees, all of us. We are seeking to find refuge for our souls. For my friend, you will face God, you will. And your human effort will not save you. It will never, ever be enough. But Christ's was enough.
what Christ accomplished on the cross was enough. So we don't seek to take drastic measures. We flee to Christ and we take hold of the hope that is set before us by faith. And we say with Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you hear this? It is by his great mercy. Not of my doing, not of your doing. It is the mercy of God. It is in God's mercy that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a certainty for the future that is alive in us, and that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So let me just clearly and simply say it to you. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. I'm gonna astound you for a moment if you're not familiar with Christianity. The Bible even admits this clearly. Listen. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died and claimed to know Jesus, they've perished, they're just gone. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So, what's the Bible saying? If there is no resurrection, people should feel sorry for us that we're here. In our rational world, it has been said that religion is the opiate of the people. So friends, if all this talk about Jesus and the resurrection is an opiate to make us feel better so we can deal with life, then here's what the Bible's saying. We should be more pitied than the worst opiate addict in Gaston County. People should feel sorry for us. Then there's verse 20 with my favorite word in the Bible, but. But in fact. How could Paul say that? He saw the resurrected Christ. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Because then there is resurrection, there is hope. There is hope in the life of the believer. There is life born again, born anew through the resurrection. It is real life. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.